Coming up, a Sad Styles production. Get into it! Welcome to the Retrograde, the video game podcast where this week we learn all there is to know about the development of one of the most iconic video games of all time. Today, my name is Mikey Rarenworth, and you'll find out why in just a little bit. Today is also a unique day because I'm not used to doing the intro, and you would know that if you've ever listened to this podcast before. If you're new, hey, thanks for listening. Uh, I think we may have a bunch of new listeners just based on the topic uh, to, of today's conversation, which is, uh, as, as I mentioned up top, one of the most iconic video games of all time. Super excited today to be talking to not my usual co-host, of uh, Andrew Bascom, uh, but but someone very special. Uh, we're joined today by the special guest who is honestly far too highly qualified to be blessing us with her time today. If you don't believe me, well, okay, she is a an associate professor of English at Regis University. That's correct. Uh, I can barely speak English, even though it's my first <laughs> language. She is a co-producer of the podcast Sweet Bitter, which explores the continuous attempted and often successful historic erasure and marginalization of queer and female identity. I co-host and co-produce a podcast with another guy called The Retrograde, where we regularly mispronounce names as simple as Neil Druckmann. Uh, she is the author of poetry collections such as Mega City Redux, which won the 2016 Green Mountains Review Poetry Prize, Copper Mother, and Annotated Glass. I have written several poorly received, strongly worded emails to listeners of my podcast who took exception to my pronunciation of Neil Druckmann. Uh, she is here today to talk about her work with Boss Fight Books, writing the definitive history of the development and reception of GoldenEye on the N64. I read the beautifully written definitive history of the development and reception of GoldenEye on the N64, then immediately called my mom to ask her what she thought my biggest accomplishment in life was. She didn't have much to say. She is Elise Knorr, and I am extremely excited to sit down to talk with her today. Elise, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That was an incredible introduction. Thank you. I spent uh, the past through. Well, we, we've been talking about scheduling this podcast for a long time. Uh, it, the reason why it took me so long to finalize it was because I was just writing the introduction. I, uh, I needed the perfect <laughs> amount of self-deprecation. It comes very easily to me. But yes, uh, the, yeah. the parallelism is beautiful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, as, as, a, <laughs> as a, an associate professor of English, geez, I, I, I'll take that with, with high esteem. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for having me. No, I'm, I'm super excited to get into this. When you reached out, I... Honestly, we, we get a lot of uh, messages to the retrograde uh, uh, email account. A lot of them are spam. And I honestly, this this one, you know, not to, to kind of tip my hand a little bit too much or, or fanboy out here, but it seemed almost too good to be true. I'm very <laughs> well aware of of uh, boss fight books and uh, and and the, the history of Goldeneye that had come out. A lot of our listeners had actually reached out to uh, to, to tell tell us about it after we talked about Goldeneye a couple times on the podcast. Uh, so when you said you were the author, I was like, no, you're not. <laughs> Actually, to look up your name and make sure that you were who you said you were. Uh, and then when I responded back to you, it turns out it was all it was all good stuff. So uh, uh, very excited to get into this. I want to also just get to know you a little bit before we, you know, we're obviously going to get into the book and some of your experiences writing it and documenting it. Uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, maybe something I missed in the intro and then lead into your history of, of getting into gaming in general. Sure. Yeah. Um, like you said, I, uh, I'm a professor of English out in um, Denver, Colorado. I teach at a Jesuit Catholic school. I live across the street from the school uh, with my wife, who also teaches in the English department at Regis and um, our two kids. We have a four-year-old and a seven-week-old. Mm. Uh, so I do a lot of gaming with, uh, with my daughter. Um, I write poetry. I write uh, literary criticism. Um, and I've written two books for uh, Boss Fight. The first one was about Super Mario Brothers 3. And uh, the uh, latest one is about Goldeneye. Um, and I'm I'm just such a big uh, fan. I've started making TikTok videos to kind of give Goldeneye trivia, um, share oh, it with the, the masses. And What's your, what's your um, TikTok just, account? It's just Elise Knorr, A-L-Y-S-E-K-N-O-R-R. Perfect. So uh, check that out if you're listening. Uh, I love my Goldeneye trivia. I, I'm sure you know uh, quite a bit more about it than, although I'm sure I know way more than most people after reading the book. So I think I think uh, I, I might do pretty well there. Uh, you, so. you mentioned your kids. Was getting them into gaming always on on the, in the cards? Was that something that you wanted to do from an early age? For sure. So I learned to play video games before I could read or write. Um, mm. My dad set me down on his lap when I was three years old and we played Super Mario Brothers 3. We played Doom, which is maybe a little dicey for a three-year-old. Nice, nice. Um, we played Miss. We played Day of the Tentacle. Um, so he was a computer guy and growing up in the um, in the 90s, you know, I, I just played a lot of games with him. And so it was really important to me to share that with my daughter too. And um, just like he started me on Super Mario 3, I've started her in the exact same way. Is, so with Super Mario Bros. 3, that was that was like your yes. your entry point there? 
Yeah, I think it just the timing of it came around when I was old enough to hold a controller and he had the NES and he was mm. really excited about it and addicted to it and he just wanted to share it with me. So obviously, you know, we we focus a lot on retro games. Uh, I wouldn't by any stretch consider myself an expert on retro games. The whole idea of this podcast was to go back and see whether or not our experiences playing games as kids would actually hold up in the modern day. So it's fascinating yeah. to me that you would actually choose a retro game uh, to to introduce to your kids first. Is that is there anything to that? Basically, just, you know, the, the simplicity of it, the ease of access, the the less complicated, or was it just because the symbolism of, of that being your first entry point as well? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, you know, it probably is a little more, I mean, it's both, but it's probably, if we're being honest, a little more the latter, a little more yeah. the nostalgia of wanting to share with her the exact same game yeah. and the exact same memories as I did with my dad. I did show her the other day, I downloaded, you know, the Peppa the Pig game on oh, nice. Xbox and it's, my favorite game it's so much time. easier for her. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. It's great. It's um, great. It's so easy. It's so much easier for her and it's more in her wheelhouse. And so she really enjoyed that. But what I find so amazing, and I talk about this in the Mario 3 book, is that you know, nostalgia is usually, it, it means a bittersweet, the word means a bittersweet longing to return mm. to a place that you can no longer return to, usually a, a site of one's youth, you know, a yeah. playground you grew up on, it's been demolished, it's been destroyed by a mall, you know, whatever. With video games, we can actually literally go back to the places we spent time in with our friends and family as youths. And so I think that's a really powerful thing about game nostalgia that we are, are allowed access to that. So I want to like, you know, we usually joke around and we're, we're little shitheads on this podcast, but I, I want to get kind of philosophical with you on that because you know the, the whole idea of nostalgia and 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 revisiting and going back home yeah um i i have a different experience with games sometimes Ooh. where revisiting the games that i i used to play like that the best example i would give is running around in the garden of super mario 64 uh right. for the first time like literally one of the greatest experiences of my entire life hard to top it was it was unbelievable yes. now going so nice. back i've had so many other experiences playing in 3d space that the wonder of that moment has been dulled out a little bit do you find that you know apart from the the sights and the sounds kind of like bringing your sense memory back do you find you're able to just really put yourself back in the position of being a child on your dad's lap playing mario or is, is there that disconnect that you you kind of find it hard to bridge sometimes it's a great question i mean i think that of course you know there's never going to be that first time for anything for mm -hmm. the first time you play a game for your first kiss with your partner for mm -hmm. the the first time you you see that plot twist in the sixth sense you sure. know um no, nothing's going to compare and it does depend game to game for me so like i've been trying to play goldeneye on the switch and the yeah. xbox and even with the controls reconfigured to make them normal it just doesn't feel right it doesn't feel right unless you're holding that really sticky n64 um monstrosity of a controller yeah, in your hands. Yeah. That's the only way it feels right. But at the same time, I think that what's really fun about memory is that you're you're always revising the memory. That's how our memories work. We're, we're rewriting every time we do the experience. And so it can actually be new every time. It's new for 36-year-old Elise to go back sure. and play that game with um, my four-year-old. Um, it does feel very comforting to me to actually played through day of the tentacle the other night. Cause nice. I saw that it was available on the, the rare or the, um, the Lucas, Lucas arts replay yeah. co collection. And I was like, let's just download this. And there was something so comforting about knowing where to put everything and what to get and what to do when. And it was just that kind of mindless comforting. I know what I'm doing feeling, which, uh, so I have so rarely in my day to day life. No, now. that's true. That's true. Yeah. The, 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 what, what makes that game and a lot of games, from Lucasfilm or, or Lucas games as well. Exciting the first time you play them is figuring out the, the problems and then playing them again. The fun part is is the already knowing and kind of just getting to to yeah. exist in the world without being too stressed out about it. Um, it's like that difference between dopamine and serotonin, right? Sure, you're going to get sure. the, the rush of newness versus the comfort of the familiar. That's a great way to put it. And and I, the, the older I get, the more and more comfortable I am with the familiar. So I, I like that quite a bit. Um, do you in general consider yourself to be uh, more of a retro gamer, more of a modern gamer? And uh, regardless of your answer, what, what do you find yourself playing for yourself nowadays? You know, this is wild, but I, I got my very first PlayStation in my life, mm. like a couple months ago. I've always been sort of an, a Nintendo girl, yep. um, both retro stuff and, and some newer stuff. Um, and I've, you know, Xbox, I'm really into the Bethesda games. Yeah. Um, I love big, big world building games that I can just get immersed in for, for literally sure. years, years. Um, I find that I don't have as much time to game as I did before yeah. as a kid when I had endless and endless hours. No, no limits on screen time mm -hmm. as a child over here. Um, so I do need to be a little bit more choosy about which games I'm going to fall in love with. Um, but boy, was it, I mean, after having 
watch the world react to the last of us after watching the show to go and play it for the first time, you know, as, as a 36 year old, I was like, yeah, I get it. I, I did get you, did you play through it after watching the TV show? I did. I oh, did. that's fast. Have yeah. you played part two yet? Not yet, but I want okay. to play it before season two of the show comes out for sure. Cause I've heard it's just, you know, wild. It's, it's a big choice to make. We we've, it's, it's so weird for, for a fairly old game. We've had to make the decision to not talk about, the key moments of the story of the last of us part two, because now we're in spoiler territory for something that a lot of people haven't experienced. But I know so many people who are now making that choice to either, and you know, talking about Neil Druckmann, I brought him up at the top of the episode, but to either uh, get into the last of us game now and play it or to, uh, to, to experience the story for the first time in the TV show. My brother is one of the people who wants to watch the TV show first and then go back and play the game. So yeah, Yeah. you're, you're, you think you're going to play it? I will definitely play it. And I, I mean, it's, it's a masterpiece of a game. It was a masterpiece of a TV show. How lucky are we that we get a TV show based on a game that's not only decent, but extraordinary. For sure. um, And that has captured the public attention in this way. So I just feel so lucky that I even get to say, oh, what should I, should I do first? Should I play it first or or watch it first? And I'm glad that I, I got the experience of watching and then playing. And now for season two, I'll do the opposite. I'll, I'll play and then watch. Oh, that's great. Yeah. 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 a, A different perspective on it. Um, sure. Okay, so so let's let's get into a little bit of Goldeneye first. Uh, before we get into the weeds with with the book itself, in in the book you mentioned that correctly. Pierce Brosnan is your James Bond. Uh, what is your favorite <laughs> James Bond movie? You know, I actually just made a project uh, with my wife because we we're we're at home. We're, we we teach, so we have the summers off, and we've mm-hmm. got this little baby. There's not much to do, so we're we're trying this summer to watch through all of them because I certainly oh, wow. haven't seen all of them, but we want to just watch them from start to finish. Um, and I do think that, so Goldeneye is the first Spawn movie I ever saw because I, like many millennials, played the game before seeing the movie. Yeah, same um, So, you know, for that reason, Goldeneye is probably my favorite um, Bond movie. It's just so iconic uh, for all that it represents about my childhood, about Pierce Brosnan, about um, the connection to the game. And, um, you know, th- there's there's a situation where you, we should have played the watched the movie first and then played the game because right. the, the movie came out two years before the game. But instead, most of us went the other way. Um, so we got the delight of saying like, oh, cool, there he is in the vent and facility. I've done right. that a million times. I've right. already beaten him there. I've been there before. You know, it's Yeah, great. he's not doing it the way I did. He didn't shoot the guy's hat off. You got to shoot the guy's <laughs> hat off. What are you yes, doing? Yes, yes. What is he thinking? What is he thinking? <laughs> he's got to stand there creepily behind the guy at the urinal just waiting for him to turn around. Why isn't he playing this game the way yeah, I Yeah, while the guy isn't doing anything in the urinal, just standing there with just- his gun. Oh, oh, you've never been into a men's washroom before? That's that's what we do. We <laughs> Is that just, what you do? Yeah. yeah okay. We just stand there with an AK-47 and just stare at the wall. It's 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 a, just a mental break that we take. Um, uh, I, I like that. It's funny, actually, having just talked about The Last of Us, uh, because I kind of agree with you. Goldeneye, for me, has to be it. Uh, because yeah. I think it was the first time, A, that I had been introduced to James Bond, really, in any specific or, or major way and b it was a multi-screen experience i i had the game yes. and i had the uh the the movie to kind of bounce my ideas off of it yeah. bled out of just the, the movie screen the tv screen at the time when i was watching it and i got to kind of like imbue my own meta narrative yeah. to it yeah yeah and that's so fun and i mean the game definitely jokes with that like when you're in the bunker level and you have to go collect the tape it's the the object you know the, the yes right is is the tape of goldeneye the movie it's, it's just hilarious there's me. there's so much going back one of the most delightful things about going back and reading this book was all of the reminders some of which I knew and some of which I didn't of the little trivia things, not only that the developers put into the game, but why certain things ended up making it into the game. And sometimes the mistakes that ended up getting into the game uh, yes. uh, as a result that became iconic parts of what we know Goldeneye as. And we'll get into right. a lot of that. Um, let's start off with this then. When you're setting up the idea of of this, this uh, book and, and you're talking about the interviews within the book, you talk about Zoom interviews a lot, especially in the beginning. Was was most of the groundwork performed for this book during COVID? Uh, and, and is that, in your opinion, if so, kind of why the Rare team finally wanted to talk? Like they're getting a bit squirrely being inside all the time? Or or was this kind of just, you knew it was going to happen before COVID and it was all going to happen regardless? That's a great question. I'm, I'm trying to remember the timeline of when I pitched the book to Gabe, the editor at Boss Fight, and when I started working on it. I can't quite remember because all the guys live in England mm-hmm. um, and in Canada, it would have had to be on Zoom no matter what. But I do remember feeling a certain comfort and familiarity with Zoom that sure. I wouldn't have pre-COVID. So yeah. I'm sure that was part of it. I will say what's really interesting about the rare guys is that some of them, like David Doak, has made his uh, public persona 
um, his his GoldenEye experience. Yeah. I mean, he's a character in the game. He's Dr. Dokes from the damn level. His avatar on Twitter, his profile picture is the in-game character. Yeah. And he talks all the time about the game. He'll talk to anyone on Twitter about the game. He's given millions of interviews. And then other guys like Martin Hollis or A.D. Smith have either in A.D. Smith's case, like barely ever spoken um, or Martin Hollis's case kind of talk sometimes and then go years without talking. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I definitely did have to kind of start with the most vocal guys like David Doak and earn their trust so that then they would connect me with the other guys who are a little quieter and they would say, Hey, this person really cares. She's, she's, you know, she's doing a really careful job. You should talk to her Um, to the point where I was kind of in the very last um, hours of, of copy editing, like the last week of copy editing. And, and one of the guys got back to me and was like, Hey, sorry, it took me so long. I've been ignoring you, but you know, I, I, I think I want to talk to you. Here's some thoughts. Um, so, so that was just kind of going back to my old, I'm a journalism major from college. Yeah. So just kind of trying to develop trust and, and, and tell them that, you know, even though I know you've done a million interviews, I've read them all. And I promise I won't ask you the same things. I'm going to respect great. your yeah. time. I'm going to use these interviews you've already done. Um, but then I'm going to use our time together to ask brand new questions. That's fantastic. And it, it seems like it's been, Hollis specifically seemed like someone who had an endless amount to say and and hearing that they weren't constantly talking about it. I, like I would be bubbling out if I had an experience, like I would be more like Doke where yeah. I would just have to tell this story. And it yeah. seems like maybe some of them started off a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, playing their cards co- close to their chest, but you got enough out of them that no one really yeah. seemed like that in hindsight after all the interviews. So I think that's, that's I kudos did- to you. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, I'm I'm really proud of that because it was very, very important to me that I talk with all of them to get a fair and balanced look at the process and leave no one out. I mean, it's only an eight person team, 10 if you count the composers. So everyone played such a big role that I didn't want anyone to feel left out. I wanted everyone's voice to be included. Um, And I get why some of them, you know, if you if you have the greatest achievement of your entire career at age 24, Mm -hmm. for some of them now, you know, in their 50s, like that doesn't feel good. I I imagine they didn't share this with me, but they, they might I imagine they might be a little sick of talking about this thing they did fresh out of college, instead of some of the newer projects that they're really excited about. They want to move on with their lives and with their careers. They're artists, right? Whereas others like David Doak, um, you know, just talk a lot about being so, so great. They're, they're all very grateful and they're sure. all just the sweetest guys. But um, I, I do understand why some of them, and some of them were kind of jaded, kind of bitter about maybe different things that happened in their careers with Rare after the fact. And so yeah. it could be a little touchy to go back to that time. That That's a that's a great way to put it. I, I, I hadn't really considered the, you know, the early success almost being this this specter over the artist later in their career. It's just like, how like I Ringo Starr almost. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Um, uh, yeah, Ringo, like not wanting to talk about the Beatles, even though it's like, <laughs> dude, that's pretty significant. Right. You know, I don't right, care how right. old you are. That That's that's massive. Um, uh, uh, you start off talking about this book. This is one thing I, I almost wanted to move past this, but I, I don't think I can because there's a game that from the N64 that I really, really liked. And I know that a lot of people oh. look back on it poorly. <laughs> You start off the book by throwing some serious shade towards Shadow of the Empire. Um, <laughs> I knew like, you were going to say <laughs> I love that game. And I we, we actually went back on the podcast and reviewed that way back in 2019. You know, a respectable but not perfect nine and a half out of 16 total score that we gave it. Andrew wasn't as yeah. big a fan of it. Um, uh, but one of the things I loved about that game is as a kid, I thought it was a Battle of Hoth simulator. That's basically all yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah. But it, it ended up being a little bit more. Why the shade for Shadows of the Empire? What, what, okay, what that about? to be fair, I think the only shade I threw it was to that one specific mechanic in the one specific level, which is getting the freaking tow cables to yes. release when they're supposed to. Yes. Yeah. Um, because like you, you it, the reason it felt like a hot simulator is because you could never get past that level. Um, Even though so it was so cool. What a selling point for the N64. <laughs> that, I, that I remember that commercial uh, like to my core watching the, the, oh, the very cool the, mood the yeah, to that yeah. game. Very, very, cool. very much. I mean, for, you know, there were so many really lame Star Wars games and that one just felt really badass and also i threw my control at the controller at the wall so many times about those those if somebody has a tip if anybody has like a you know a hot tip on how to how to make it work i would love to know the, that. To, the toe cables yeah the I, toe think, cables. I think i think modern day gamers would say just get good and i know that being a fan of, of from soft games and being told to uh to just be yeah. better uh, it's like it's, look it's old school hard i don't want to hear that from a 25 year old you know i there was a time i was good at games my brain doesn't work the same way anymore yeah. Um, uh, oh, yeah. so, so going back to what I was going to go to before I, I had to, to, to make that little comment about shadows, <laughs> of the empire, 
you know, you talk about the success that this studio had and, and how this was kind of like peak success for a lot of these, you know, fresh out of college uh, 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 developers at the time and some who had no experience developing. How much of that do you think, though, is owed to the unique state of gaming at the time, um, you know, with the Stamper Brothers and, and Rare and, and the community that they're able to build and the freedom that they're able to give? Nowadays, it seems like the stakes are almost too high in, in modern day game creation, too expensive. Um, is, is there another game company you see out there right now that you would compare to Rare at the time that they were that they were developing this game? Oh, that's a really good question. Um and the answer might be no, because it just just the uniqueness of 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 probably where not at. probably not. To, I mean, obviously there are small teams today making indie games that are smaller. Yeah. What was so unique about GoldenEye was that they were the you know the Ubisoft of their of their time or whatever. They sure. they were the triple A biggest budget title, and they were still an eight person team. So yeah. I don't think that is ever going to happen again in games. Cause like you said, like, and the, and the guys talk about this cause most of them are still in the games industry. Sure. And so they've gone from working with eight people who are best friends in a barn, like family, making all the decisions together to like, there are eight people on like this one lighting graphic yeah. alone. Yeah. You know, you can't talk to anyone. And they expressed a lot of frustration in seeing that change over the course of their career, that there isn't that feeling of close compatibility and teamship te- uh, and, and teammanship. They, they all, even the ones who had some conflict with the Stamper Brothers mm-hmm. when they left Rare, they all had the most glowing things to say about the Stamper Brothers as leaders, as uh, people to work for. Just the amount of freedom they gave them, the amount of trust they put in them, the amount of flexibility they gave in their deadlines, none of which is possible today with the big budget uh, studios. So I think it's a combination of both. Yeah, you there, there's a very fluorescent thread that you've weaved through the story, which is, I mean, you and, and the people giving the interview, which is the Stamper Brothers. That it, that, especially early on, the backdrop of, of Rare and the Stamper Brothers their stories really it, it's it's one almost of artistic control and one that that yeah. kind of doesn't exist for a lot of studios now you know after right. the success that they had with ultimate they sell it and rebrand on yeah. rare after donkey yeah. kong they decide purposely to make fewer games uh, initially they turned down the licensed opportunity with GoldenEye because it would limit yeah. their artistic control um at what point do you think was it that they just said enough is enough we're kind of taking a step back maybe we've gotten too big or do you think they just kind of rode off into the sunset and we're like we're we did what we need to do yeah, that's really good. I mean, d- just as a side note, the other thing that makes them so unique now and then was the fact that they were this family business that like right. their mom was serving their employees yes, lunch yes, in the canteen and like their brother was driving people to the airport. I mean, it, it's just it's just wild to me. Um, and that there were like chickens walking around the facility it was this old farm. And, until they weren't, until someone yeah, ran over like, them. That, what, yeah. Like you just glazed over that. I'm like, I want a chapter <laughs> on the chickens. How Murder in the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, and the fact that a lot of the physical space of the Rare Campus in that time is reflected in GoldenEye the game. Like those security cameras that yes. you're shooting left and right in GoldenEye look exactly like the security cameras on the um, Rare Campus. And the fact that you need a key card to get everywhere in the GoldenEye games, the same as it was on the Rare Campus. They were so private team to team about their games that if you weren't on the GoldenEye team, you did not have a key to the barn yeah. to go in there and see what they were. But anyway, I mean, yeah, the, w- when you read like like Simon Parkin, um, a journalist who's just who I admire so much has done some great writing about the collapse of, I mean, Rare, Rare is still going, right? But they're not what they were in the 90s. No. And he attributes that to the buyout from from, Mike, from Microsoft. Yeah. The line he says that I really appreciate is, um, the, the groom was rich and the bride was beautiful. Mm. And basically that Nintendo and Rare in the 90s, they had such a synergy between them as companies that just really created something special. And Microsoft did not know how to work with Rare once they bought them. Yeah. That's that's a great point, and it's it's one of the the ultimate tragedies that I think people who are yeah. five or six years older than than you or myself uh, may not may or, or five or six years younger uh, may not have have picked up on like like what rare was when they were at their peak. You look at the number of hits. I this always fascinates me is like the number of actual major hits on the N sixty four, and how many of them were rare, not Nintendo games. Uh, yes. They they had yes. such a key a key role and if they were removed from the Nite- yes. nintendo and kind of their being their right hand uh it's a, it's it's strange to think what that console would have been without them 100 percent. i don't think the n64 would have made it without rare um, i make the case for that in my book like just talking about how the 1997 e3 conference the nintendo yes. booth looked like a rare booth everything yeah. there was rare conquer banjo kazooie goldeneye 
Um, and so then if the N64 hadn't made it, you know, where would Nintendo be now? Because the N64 and the GameCube were a dark time for them. Um, right. That, you know, I think one of the reasons you could, you, I, you know, not, not to be too huge about it, but like you can thank GoldenEye, you can thank Martin Hollis and the Rare Guys for saving the N64, which in turn saved Nintendo. It's funny because, you know, I've I've learned the hard way that anytime you try to take credit away from Nintendo publicly, people get upset about it, which is like, sure. I don't understand because I love I love Nintendo, but like they're not this golden child. You're you're absolutely right. They needed a hand. They got it. Thankfully, they did because now they continue to innovate. But like, let's not sugarcoat their history. Rare had right. a massive hand in that. Uh, right. And it's 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 worth bringing up. Apart from Goldeneye, any specific Rare games that, that you spent a lot of time playing? You mentioned Conquerors. I don't know. Was that one that you were even allowed to play as a kid? I was a Donkey Kong kid oh, on nice, Super nice. Nintendo. Um, God, those games are beautiful. Mm-hmm. I remember just having grown up on the, on the Mario platformers. The first time I played Donkey Kong, and not just how they looked, but how they felt, you know, what yeah. it felt like to turn into an animal and run around and bust barrels open and, and the vines and the mine carts and just how how good the gameplay felt was really addicting. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, just, just a huge highlight for me for my, my own childhood was the, all three Donkey Kong games. For me, it was about Donkey Kong. It was it was eating bananas that it was a banana yes. eating simulator for me. That was it. I just yeah. want to eat bananas as a as a as a big monkey. That's all I want. I mean, yeah. How innocent that we're just going to save his bananas. <laughs> I would I would start the game and I would just go out of his little cabin and I would go to the left into his little banana yeah. storage area and I just hang Isn't out there. Cool? Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. so nice. Love that. So a very fun. rare addition there. Um, I yep. want to get into a little bit about the humor of the game. Uh, before I do, though, there was a really interesting part of your book. Again, it was it was towards the earlier chapters when you're talking about Bond kind of conceptually. And, and by Bond, I don't mean the franchise. I mean, James Bond, the character. Um, yeah. You mentioned his presence in academia, uh, uh, having him be studied as a mummy, a cyborg, a lesbian icon, a source of yeah. anal fixation. Um, with you being a co-producer on Sweet Bitter, which is uh, uh, you know a study of queer and women's history, as I mentioned in the intro, which sometimes uses literary works or historical fiction, um, is there is there more to you mentioning this about Bond <laughs> than than you kind of let on? Because it's kind of a throwaway line, but knowing your history, I'm assuming there's more to the story. Can you can you share a little bit about what you mean by that? Especially especially saying that, that like a couple lines later, you describe him as a, a sexist imperialist. I'm like, how do those dovetail? Right. So can you right. can you explain that a bit? Man, that's so fun. And sorry, I had to grab my power cord. I'm gonna just plug myself in here so that I don't. No worries. Fade away on you. Um, that's my son Calvin. He says hello with his screaming. Hello, Calvin. You know, I, I find academia so funny, like just the world of academia, because um, we are really good at, you know, theorizing everything, especially sure. lit crit people. We can take any kind of cultural icon or text and, and theorize the crap out of it. It's postmodernism. So, That's what we do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I find it very funny that this object of pure pop culture fascination, people going to the movies to watch someone get shot on top of a train mm-hmm. that we're talking about, you know, the, the the phallus as object of James Bond. I mean, there's literally an article in the compendium of academic essays I read called James Bond's penis. And, <laughs> and you know, it's like this Freudian study of the phallus and the gun and the, uh-huh. all the stuff. And um, so, so yeah, to, to be able to inhabit a space where academics both, you know, most of us kind of look at them as a symbol of sex, you know, uh, patriarchal power and imperial sure. power. But to be able to say, you know, some academic out there is going to flip it so much that they're like, Actually, he's a lesbian icon because he has this, you know, like you can make an argument about anything. Sure, um, sure. And I think that's what's cool about Bond is that he's a blank slate, right? Whether it's for academics, whether it's for gamers, whether it's for viewers, he's so generalized and boring that actually he can be anything to anyone. That's he's a great an avatar. Point. And, and, like and, Mario. and in it, like Mario, there you go. Yeah, he has no, well, I mean, Bond has a voice, but Mario doesn't. But I know what you're yeah. meaning, especially in the sense that Bond has been treated so differently in so many of his different movies um, that you can almost make an argument for for anything. What I yes. did find fascinating, though, was around the time of GoldenEye specifically, it seems like the treatment of chauvinism and sexism uh, yeah. takes on a different a different meaning. I, I rewatched yeah. it recently, and for the first time watching a Bond movie, it wasn't just watching it through the lens of history, saying like, oh, what he's doing is really skeptical, really questionable. It's yeah. the characters around him are commenting on it. And yes. he doesn't seem to get the point in, yes. in in that sense. It almost makes it like a commentary on what he's doing. It's like you can right. keep being the same person, but it's not going to fly anymore. Um, um, 
Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, my, my wife and I just rewatched the the very first Bond movie, Dr. No from 1963. And it mm. was, I mean, you know, he, he saunter, he's, he's, he sleeps with women right before he arrests them. He right. saunters in and just basically starts giving money, penny a massage yes. um, at work. And so when you compare Goldeneye to that, where he's, he's just like making some little comments, it feels like, wow, we've come so far in 30 years. What's so interesting about that period of Bond though, in the films is that they wanted to have their cake and eat it too. It was sure. a time of political correctness where everyone wanted to um, preserve the Bond bondness by having him be flirty and by having mm-hmm. him be a bit of a misogynist dinosaur as, as M calls him that. Yeah. But to point out to the viewer, we know this is antiquated. We know this is problematic. We know this is archaic. They will have M make that comment. They will have him kind of be laughing at himself. Um, and they even did that in the PR, right? Like on the one hand, they want to, they want to say in a lot of the press statements, no more, no more bond girls, no more bimbos. We've right. got a computer scientist. We've got a badass general Xenia on a top. Yeah. Um, but then you had um, Pierce Brosnan in the PR for the movie going around and saying, yeah, he's a chauvinist and that's the best thing about him. And if, if, a, if a woman talks back to him, he'll give her a little slap. So you're, so you're like, well, there, there's both, we're trying to do everything at once. Yes. Here. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> that part of it as well. Cause I hadn't seen that interview when you mentioned it. I, you know, I was in the camp of like, okay, Brosnan is ushering in this new style of bond, but to have him in the interviews, sometimes not even saying chauvinist, just calling him a man's man is yeah, right. like that. That does not, it does, it doesn't mesh. Um, totally. so that, that's a, that's a, a curious way to say it. I, I, I like that about them trying to have their cake and eat it too, or at least the general message being a little bit all over the place, but at least yeah. we're making some progress, uh, 100%. you know, both in terms yeah. of, uh, uh, our treatment of bond and, and, uh, the female characters in, in the movie and yeah. some progress, uh, to, to get back to the game itself in, in the treatment of video games and, and, and the, right. the graphical prowess and, and, and how we play, especially first person shooters yeah. on there, um, yeah. and tone. And I want to talk a little bit about that in our as as our next point of conversation. One of the key elements of Goldeneye is this balance of humor. It, it, you say this is a balance of humor, violence, and humorous violence. If yeah. humor were taken out of the game, but the mechanics were the same, all right. So no paintball mode, no big head mode, no slappers only. How much better or worse do you? I guess worse would this game have been received, and do you think it would have had the same impact as it as it ended up having? I think because so much of the game's success and sort of iconic cult status among people today is still about um, the multiplayer mode and about having fun with your friends when you were in middle school or high school and you were just being so silly on the couch together, you know, like shooting your buddy's face off while you like elbow him and (laughs) chugging Mountain Dew and stuff like that. Like the big head mode and the paintball mode, um, odd job right hilarious yeah. all of that is all that humor and silliness i think was so much a part of the lighthearted multiplayer el- element that i i just really don't think it would be the same game if you took it out not to mention that as much as being super cool and super suave is part of bond's dna so is camp and so yes. is silliness especially looking at like the roger moore era but even i mean the first time we meet pierce brosnan in the GoldenEye movie he's hanging upside down in a bathroom stall right. so like that silliness was even part of the GoldenEye movie and and it's always there's always humor in bond movies i think some of the um weaker bond movies are the ones that try to be entirely grim and bleak um i think dc by the way it's my opinion has some of that same problem going on with its you know comic book stories and so that's true humor humor is always going to work if you're going to have something really outrageously um action hero-y a little bit of humor is always nice yeah there was that era not to get too off topic but there was that era in like the early 2000s just in general where everything had to be really dark and even casino royale was hurt a little bit by this. It was like, let's yes. let's take ourselves and our franchises super, super seriously. And sometimes it's so nice to just go back and laugh at some of the things that that yes. we used to laugh about in, in yes. a Bond movie. Yes. Great point about hanging upside nev- down in a bathroom stall, yeah. I mean, I'll never forget, I forget which Bond movie it was, but I think it was the very first Daniel Craig movie. There's a scene where he's, get, he's, doing, he's doing a shock defibrillator on himself out in a car yes. after having a heart attack. And I, I remember watching it and just being like, if you love that scene, more power to you. It's great. It's very exciting. It's a very different kind of action. But I was like, I'm just not having fun watching this. No. Like this is, I'm very uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. He's not a human being. Exactly. He's an android. Like I, yeah. I don't want to think. About. I want to see him riding a motorcycle off a cliff, not like yes. suffering and sweating and like having a having chest palpitations. Like yeah. this, feel, this is not fun. Like, Leave the chest palpitations to me. I'm the one chugging right. Mountain Dew right. and playing multiplayer Goldeneye. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. Yes. Um, do you think? Uh, uh, I I I I think I know the answer, but but I guess I'll say how much of the humor in Goldeneye ended up being intentional uh, versus 
uh, uncanny valley hardware limitations issues on the on on kind of the coding in the beginning. Uh, you know, you see like repeating yeah. facial maps on enemies, that janky right. combat role that they did, the weird chop animation and sound. How much yeah. of that, having spoken to the the people involved in the game, do you think was intentional versus something that just kind of kind of happened? It is so in so much more intentional than I think anyone That's would guess. Great. I mean, from day one, before he even had assembled his team, when he made his pitch to the higher ups, Martin Hollis had written in his game design documents. We have this. We have this document. This isn't just from his memory. Notes to himself and questions about what is the appropriate level of humor. Mm. He wanted humor to be a part of the game from the very beginning. And so then, from there, not only was it intentional, but also there. You know, it's eight guys in their 20s um, with nothing to lose, who've never worked on a game before, having the time of their life, um, because they're playing the whole time they're they're working on the game together. They're playing playing, uh, Super Bomberman. They're playing Doom. So play was such a part of their process that, of course, humor and silliness was going to get baked in. Um, And they were very, they, they thought the chopping was hilarious. It started off as, you know, it's easier to animate a hand than a fist. Yeah. And so it was just a, a, but they kept it because it was so hilarious to them. And the sound, the over the top kind of John Woo action movie, (laughs) you know, um, bullets careening off, ricocheting off surfaces, the ability to blow up everything that you see, even chairs and tables. um, All of that was very intentional. And when it wasn't, when it was like, Hey, we didn't scale the, um, one of the really great examples of this that I didn't get to put in the book was that, um, when the helicopter blows up, mm-hmm. um, they had a certain explosion graphic. And so then later in the game, when you see the, the the tiny desk model of the helicopter, if you shoot it, it blows up to the same extent oh, as, no the, as the full helicopter. Oh, that was just amazing. an accident. But they left it in because they thought this is so funny. So mm-hmm. everything was either intentionally funny or it was a mess up, but they said, we have to keep this because it's so funny. We're not going to fix this because it is so funny. That that uh, like gift from the drama gods that they just embraced so often is, I, I, I like, you talk about the sense of play and that seems to be it. Like it, it's just this yeah. acceptance of, if it made me laugh in development, why wouldn't it make me laugh when I'm playing the game as well? It's a great way right, to look at it. Right, if the, if the developers are having fun making the game, then you'll have fun playing it. That was really their philosophy. And I think it really, you know, it doesn't always work, but in this case it did. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, to go uh, to, to focus on Hollis a little bit and and you talk about how important it was for the game to be funny and you say fun. Uh, I loved the, the, the area of the book where you're talking about his four principles for making games. Is it fun? Is it funny? Is it self-consistent with the world of the game? And is it fair? Of those four principles, not for GoldenEye specifically, but for your enjoyment of gaming which one do you think is the most important i think is it fair actually i mean, I mean i'm a firstborn daughter um yeah. I, I am i'm pretty type a um i get very very frustrated when i'm playing a game even if it's very fun and even if it's very funny and consistent um and and there's a great book called the art of failure all about this by jesper jewel it's it's kind of the importance of failure in games and that not only should you be failing a fair amount in games, enough to keep it challenging, but not too challenging. It has to be right in that flow state. Yep. But when you fail, it is absolutely crucial that you know that the failure is your fault. Mm-hmm. And how often do we want this in the real world? We don't want to fail. We don't like failure. And we certainly don't want it to be our fault. We don't want to take responsibility for that. That's really hard. But in a game, what we go do in our free time, I mean, I love this paradox, is that we want to fail a little bit yeah. and we want it to be, feel like it's our fault. Because if you feel like, um, and it's a little bit the toe cables for me here, if you feel like <laughs> I pressed the button, yes. I pressed it, yeah. I pressed it and the game didn't register it, yeah, that's then you feel like, mine. I, yeah, like I'm, this game is trolling me and I'm yeah. doing my best. So it feels unfair. I'm I'm a hundred percent with you. I, you know, I like comedy, <laughs> I like humor, I like fun, but fairness is is what it all comes down to. And I'll I'll stop playing a game immediately if if something like that happens. And and fairness isn't necessarily as you were talking about um, um, ease. Fairness is not a guarantee right. of success. Success right. that isn't guaranteed is the success that we want. That's why, as you mentioned yes. on our off time, we try to fail because on the other yes. side of failure is success. And one of the most interesting. Uh, 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 inclusions into GoldenEye, I think that you talked about in the game with this in mind, is the pause menu. Uh, I was hoping you'd bring that up. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? I thought that was so interesting and, and the, the the awareness that the developers had when they put it in there. So if you remember from the game, when you're playing the single player campaign, you might be getting the absolute shit, you know, uh, shot out of you and, and, you, and your mom calls you to come downstairs for dinner and you have to hit pause <laughs> 
But if you're not behind a wall or you're not somewhere safe and you hit pause, you are going to get shot while the game is pausing because mm-hmm. the pause mechanic, the animation you probably remember is that you're looking up at your watch and then it's not till your watch comes fully up to your to your level of vision that the game actually pauses. Right. And same thing, once you unpause, you'll get shot a few times. So it's, it's not an immediate pause screen, basically. Mm-hmm. It's like an animated pause screen. And this drove a lot of people nuts, right? Because you were like, there's no, I, I can't um, pause um, without getting hurt. And it was incredibly frustrating. Martin Hollis thought this was absolutely hilarious. Yeah. Um, he thought it was fair within the world they had created, which was very, very, very first person, very, 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 you know, at the very beginning of every level, the camera spins around and sticks you into James Bond's head. Um, it really wants you to remember that you are Bond, you're wearing Bond's watch, you don't if you're if you're bond in real life you don't get to just pause and so they thought it was very fair um and they also just thought it was really funny and they they kind of thought if the the first time it happens to you you need to learn that that's the rule and then it's fair because you know it's the rule and you've got to work within the limitations of the or within the rules the game has established yeah that that specifically is is the most interesting part of it because you know we talk about this cut and dry is it fair or is it not and, you know, when I was reading it for the first time, I was like, right, I fucking hated that. I hated right. that. And and when but his explanation of saying the first time you think it's unfair, but yeah. then you've learned it like fool me once. Shame it's on consistent, you. Twice. Yeah, right? It's yeah. not like the toe cables. Sorry, I keep going back. There, but it's like it's <laughs> it's consistent that every time it behaves the same way, the mechanic operates the same way. And you do have to go into and out of the pause screen a good amount because that's how you access your inventory to set yeah. up gadgets and data decoders and things like that. So it becomes a challenge. It becomes another layer of challenging play mechanics, like in the bunker levels, especially you might really be getting shot out, but you have to go into your watch inventory and grab that data decoder. Right. Um, and so you kind of have to factor it in and it's, it's another makes you feel a little spy. Like, you know, you have to put your gun down to, right. to take out your equipment. Yeah. It's, it's challenged, but I agree in that sense. It's definitely also immersion uh, yeah. uh, because James Bond doesn't just get to snap a finger and he's got, right. you know, whatever gadget in his hand. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, totally. I, I just like the developers didn't get to snap their hand and have this, this pre-built engine for them. I, I loved as well, kind of the conversation yeah. about having to build from scratch. I, I find myself as a gamer now gravitating more towards indie games often and avoiding mm-hmm. kind of the sameness of some AAA games. Uh, yeah. And a lot of that has to do with the the underlying engine. Edmonds at one point says, it's just so completely different from Unreal or Unity Engine today, which basically just right. does everything for you. Um, do you, as 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 uh, you know, someone who used to play retro games and, and continues to play uh, games now, do you find that there is an element of sameness in some of the AAA games now? And you sort of pine for yeah. some of the differentiation between when developers had to build from scratch more often? It definitely feels like the difference between like when you look at a, a painting in a museum or a gallery that someone has labored over versus mm-hmm. the kind of automatic AI art that, you know, an AI can create. It has that uncanny fakeness. Um, it has that feeling of being cold or alien or um, and, th- and those games play so smooth and they're so fun. Like, I, yeah. I love those AAA games, but what's so fun and unique about a game like Golden, I think, is that you feel like you're walking around someone's like college project like their diorama of a level or something like they they wrote by hand every single like line of code and so you it feels it feels like a you know a home-cooked meal versus uh fast food or something it feels like this was labored over this is handmade um this is messy for that reason but a human touched every element of this and and to me that that adds some kind of duende some kind of soul that um is really valuable that's so interesting that you bring that up too especially in contrast or 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 directly compared to the fact that the Stamper Brothers ran kind of a family operation. It's like yeah. everything felt kind of homegrown, you know, with the mom yeah. cooking the meals, as you mentioned, and the brother driving mm-hmm. to the airport. Totally. Uh, Golden Eye ends up feeling somewhat similar because it's like it's 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 like you can go out and buy store made pasta, but if you if you make the noodles yourself at home, it has that extra kind of feel to it. Yeah. Right. I mean, they they aren't doing any kind of procedural generation. So every bit of graffiti you see on a wall, you know, most of the time, which actually has the the developers like initials in there. Yeah. They're so they're they're so into Easter eggs. Um, but everything was placed there by a human being. Right. I mean, it's it's just kind of beautiful, and it's sad that now it feels you know quaint. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, or or of a bygone era, and now it's right. just it's kind of like 
certain dra- types of dramas in the cinema sphere are just un- right. un- un- unmanageable now because of, yeah. of big budgets and lower budgets and you just can't get certain kinds of movies. Yeah, or and I mean, there's things I love about it. I mean, I'm, a, I'm just a, such a massive Skyrim fan and I'm so yeah. excited about Starfield. And, and of course. the thing that's captivating about those games is the scale. And yeah. so when you trade off the handmade quality, you get more scale and that's a great thing to have. It's, it's hard to have both at once, but they're both valuable. Yep, and at least we still have indie games to play. You know, in the in the right. realm of of uh, Tears of the Kingdom, I find myself playing Dave the Diver, which is a new indie game that came out recently, and it's just it's great Ooh. that we can do both if we want. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, how spoiled are we? I mean, it's wonderful. Right, a hundred percent. You know, um, um, I want to talk about speaking of spoiled. I felt absolutely spoiled getting this peek behind the curtain of some of the development because I love nothing more than like bits of trivia, like little bits of, Oh, how did this end up happening? And this is how yeah, there's yeah. so much of that in the book. Uh, you know, you talk about how, how much rare loved putting Easter eggs in the game, but also just some of the, this is the reason why something iconic became the way it is. Uh, 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 for example, the, the, the story about the repetitive placement of the seas in the statue level, um, mm-hmm. accidentally confusing players by making it that they, they thought that they were re, uh, re revisiting the same spots right, and right. then thinking that they were just like doing, you know, just regular game level design. Um, uh, the fact that this was the first game to include location-based hits when you shoot someone. Yeah. Um, this being the first game to base itself off of real-life movie sets. Mm-hmm. There's so much more than that. And I know that you as someone who has spoken to all of the developers and publishers about this and who knows pretty much all of it, you probably have like these kernels in your mind of which ones are the best. If you're at a dinner party and you don't mm-hmm. know anyone there, and you bring mm-hmm. up Goldeneye and someone's like, I love that <laughs> game. What is what is yeah. the the piece of trivia that you go to in your back pocket to make sure you've commanded the room? Wow, this is a, that's an amazing question. <laughs> um, I think to me, the most remarkable, fun thing to know about the development process is that they were all rookies, right? Mm. So that of the eight guys working on the game, only two had ever worked on a game before. Right. And it was like one time, one game. Um, one of the guys on the team had never even played a video game. That's Literally, wild. Never played a game. Um, was one that of the, the costume guys... designer? What was? Yeah, Brett. Brett. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, one of the guys, David Doak, had just finished a PhD in biochemistry. And that's how he came to game development. Right. So it seems so unlikely, right, that a game this beautiful could be made um, by these total rookies who, who Rare was kind of like, we don't really care about this project. They need something to do. They need something to cut their teeth on. This game's not going to matter. Let's let them do it. Right. Um, and the fact that it's not despite their inexperience that the game became so great, but because of it, because they didn't know what they weren't allowed to do. They didn't know what was cliche and what wasn't. They didn't know what was possible and what wasn't. Um, as a teacher, that matters so much to me to sure. be able to think about how creativity can come at any stage, at any age, and that, um, you know, yeah, that, that that you don't need, you know, years, although experience in being a veteran is very important, um, you know, success can happen at any stage in your life for sure and and that kind of uh uh that 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 sight of what a game can be doesn't have to come from someone who's been making games their their whole life in fact sometimes it needs a little bit of a step back in order to to get some new perspective yeah um um with that said then uh you must have been told in these interviews a ton of things that rare may have wanted in the game but got scrapped what is one mechanic or element that got dropped that you either wanted in the game or you're just impressed they even thought about or 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 something along those lines of something you would have liked to have seen in the final project or that you're very happy they didn't end up putting into it yeah i mean steve ellis the kind of last uh programmer to get added to the game the guy who gave us the multiplayer in just six weeks flat um he also managed to find time to include in there a complete uh emulator of the zx spectrum um (laughs) an older uh you know ultimate back when rare was ultimate um uh, cons- you know, you know um, gaming platform. And so yep. that's incredible. I mean, he's just a coding genius. Uh, but I'll, just just looking at what got scrapped, because I don't I don't think they said anything. There, there was a there was a shooting gallery where you could do like a tutorial. Um, there was a taser. There was all kinds of stuff that I don't think is really missing because it wasn't included in the game. Um, they got rid of a lot of the violence, a lot of the gore, and right. I don't think the game is is lacking at all for not having more gore. Um, but just thinking about just how what how wild a time this was that they mm. were working on the game before they even had 
a Nintendo 64 before they even had a Nintendo 64 controller. Right. They had no idea what was going on. And so they thought through some really wild stuff. The probably the wildest one that I'm really glad they didn't include is they they considered letting you reload the weapon by taking this is, the rumble. This is pack the one out. I was hoping you would go to. Th- oh this my was, god. This blew my mind when I read it. <laughs> yeah, bad idea. I'm glad they didn't go with it. But yeah, you would have you would have um taken the rumble pack out and stuck it back in to, to reload and you we would have broken so many controllers and gotten so frustrated. But that, you know, I talked to a game theorist while I was bringing the book about what is immersion in a, mm-hmm. in a video game and what is immersion in a first-person shooter. And sometimes realism is not the same thing as immersion. Oh, interesting. You know, when, when you run over a bit of ammo in GoldenEye and it automatically gets added to your inventory, that's not realistic. Right. You know, we don't see the hand reaching down and the fingers loading the bullets in. Right. Because that wouldn't be fun. That would take you out of the game and it, and you would no longer be immersed in the experience. So Martin Hollis thought a lot about that, about, you know, it's not very realistic that when I shoot a chair, I blow it up, right, but right. it does immerse me I don't me know what chairs you world. have in your house, but I have to be very yeah. careful around mine. That's <laughs> why I haven't moved chairs. much since I started this interview. Immersion is just about being Im- like, you know, absolutely sucked into the world and addicted. Mm-hmm. And so... I'm very interested in that as a writer, as a person who makes a life out of the mind and the imagination, like how, you know, where, where does, I'm writing a novel right now, or when you're watching a movie, you know, James Bond movies are not realistic, but they do immerse you. So why, like, where's that balance? I like that. I like that a lot. Um, um, Let's get into then, uh, speaking of immersion and getting into things, the, the team that was working on this, and this is where we'll kind of get into your, your personal treatment of the story and then of GoldenEye itself. Um, there's a moment in the book when you talk about almost the addictive nature of working on games, specifically games like this, you know, immersing yeah. yourself in the work 12 hour yeah. days, minimum seven days yeah. a week. You, when you're doing this interview, when you're interviewing people and you hear about the amount of work that went into it and, and people are talking about the amount of dedication that they have, does that then make you double down on your treatment of this? And you're like, I have to tell the right story. I have to put the amount of time in it because if they treated the game like this, I need to treat their story the same way. Yeah, I'm laughing because um, at some point I have a footnote that is like, I would try to. I was trying to explain to my friends who don't play video games what I'm doing, and I was like, right. "I'm writing a book called Goldeneye about a game called Goldeneye, which is about a movie called Goldeneye, <laughs> which is about a book which is based on a book called Goldeneye, right, right. which was based on." And it just keeps going back all this, yeah. all these sources of inspiration. So, you know, creative work it builds on other creative work. Um, as a you know, as a documentary journalist for this project. Absolutely. I felt a very sacred responsibility capturing what they did also out of respect to readers. Mm. I wanted to tell a new story because they have given a lot of interviews over the years with little kind of fun tips and tips and trivia about um, the process. And I wanted to offer to readers something that was comprehensive, linear, interesting, engaging. Um, It's a it's a tough balance to strike. I mean, I let all of the guys read the whole book and they offered me right down to like copy ending tips. They would write me back and be like, I think you missed a comma on this page. I mean, (laughs) I was just asking them to check their quotes to see what they were comfortable with, but they're detail oriented guys. Um, So I definitely didn't want to be writing something just to kiss their ass or just to make them happy. Um, One area that you mentioned in which I did have to be really cognizant is that what what I was reporting was what they were telling me, which is that this was some of the best years of their life and that they loved those long hours, that they sure. had so much fun that they would do it all over again if they could. I wanted to tell that story without glorifying some, you know, unhealthy practices right. in the industry. Yeah. And that's, that's become so common now. And I think that there, there are some people who, you know, the addictive nature of working and especially of working on something you love, it becomes noble and it, it, to yeah. them and to some people, and it's no shot at that, but, but you're absolutely right. It, it, it's probably hard to talk to people who are talking about this time when our treatment of, of work and work culture was just different. You know, yeah, it's not okay to force someone to work 12 hours a day if they don't want yeah. to. Now, if everyone's on board right. and they want to do it, okay. But, but that's, I didn't think about having to kind of put all those pieces in play treating it with the sensitivity that it probably deserves while giving credence to the amount of work that they actually did. Yeah. I mean, I read a lot of uh, early journalistic accounts of ultimate when it was just him and Chris Stamper in the eighties and they all followed the same, you know, these guys are geniuses and they only take one day off a year and it's Christmas. And it's just this kind of glorification of that. And I will say that after reading so many stories about development history, you never see a company be successful without hard work, but of course there's plenty of hard work that doesn't lead to success. And so you don't want to buy, you don't want to kind of add fuel to the flames of that, like um, 
fallacy of or illusion of of the you know American dream meritocracy that kind of thing. Of course, they were British, but um, yeah, yeah it, it it was a tough balance to strike. Um, I did include the story of A.D. Smith who who had to go to the hospital because he was mm-hmm. so stressed out, right. um, and having heart palpitations and things like that. So. Um, I think that there there was a range of experience, but part of what um, really lended that addictive quality was that Rare's culture was just really encouraging of that. And they they, they had a really kind of competitive culture set up, um, also a lot of support. And the guys just loved each other so much on the team that they talked a lot about just not wanting to let their friends down. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I, I think that was uh, uh, it's, it's something that we kind of struggle with now where you assume that greatness comes hand in hand with that amount of work and trying right. to, you know, give credence to to it when it happened, but also understand that there are other ways to achieve. Um, I think there's a lot of good things happening in the games industry now with with kind of the 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 more public understanding of what goes on during crunch crunch time. Yeah. So hopefully we can yeah. appreciate those stories for what they were and 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 move on to understand that not every development company needs to nor should be like that. Um, now, as we move towards the uh, the end of the of the interview, I want to talk a little bit personally about your experience with GoldenEye, as we promised we would. Um, just some some kind of rapid fire, some easier questions for you. Your favorite level, both multiplayer and single player, in GoldenEye? Ooh, um, multiplayer. I really like the complex. I think yeah. there's so many like weird little places to hide and places, especially if you're doing like mines to kind of uh, yes. destroy people and lay traps yeah. and things like that. Um, and I, I love the development story from that, where I believe it was Duncan Botwood, but I can't know for sure, um, sort of played against uh, some of his colleagues on that level after he had hidden, uh, after he had put some of those hidden little places in and they couldn't oh, no. figure out where he was shooting them from. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> they were like, how are you? Where are you? And he, yeah. and he was um, he was like, he had laid all these traps. Um, I think during the campaign, um, one of my favorite levels, which is a bit psychotic to say, is the um, control level where oh, you're wow. kind of having to having to escort Natalia and they're all shooting at her while she tries to code the um, satellite. It's an incredibly frustrating level because she gets killed a lot while she's yelling at you to like, stay quiet, James, I'm trying to work over here. And you're yes. like, I'm protecting you from all these <laughs> stay, stay quiet, but I'm sorry, when you, I'm shooting. When you win that level, especially on double O agent, which is usually where I get a little stuck, um, it's just such an incredible feeling. You're like, so much relief that she's alive and that, you know, you've made it. I also really like the um, the sneaky bunk bunker level, the bunker level that you cannot win um, if you're too loud. Right. Um, so I like this. I like the spy stuff where you actually have to use your knife, where you have to use your your gadgets, and you can't can't be too loud. Yeah, that felt most unlike any other level I had played yeah. in, a, in a game before. Facility yes. though, shout out to facility. I always I always such love. a good level. Speaking so of, were you were you a fan of like? chasing after the cheats in the game like would you would you try to 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 uh beat the levels at, on a certain uh, at, at, at a certain pace like timing yeah i didn't even like notice them oh I don't no know why I, I didn't even notice them as a kid I, I didn't pay that much attention to them but i did uh talk at length and, and i had a whole chapter that, that didn't make it into the final book about the speed running community of oh yeah Nine perfect yeah. dark and that is an incredible community with so much folklore and culture and, and just different um, stories and, and legends and competitions, and drama scandals. And so um, I, I do love the fact that the cheats, uh, you know, kind of created this huge yeah. community around speed running for that game, which is great. I remember uh, invincibility being nearly impossible to get, like probably for, yes! for a good reason. I had to invite yes. a friend over to do it for me. And like we literally, we wouldn't, go. we wouldn't talk. We wouldn't do anything. I would just give him his Mountain Dew and sit him in front of the TV until he beat it for me. And and that was, uh, yeah, yeah, that was, uh, that was a fun one. Um, uh, another thing that you mentioned in, in the book that I really liked and I hadn't really thought about it is you point out that the guns themselves felt more like characters than weapons, um, yes. which was great because they have so much personality to them, right. more so than a lot of other games I played at the time. Do you have a yeah. favorite weapon uh, and was there a favorite weapon consensus for the people that you interviewed um yeah so i love the laser um Mm. i love that it's really unique you only get it into one bonus level it feels so good you don't have to worry about ammo it's devastating and precise yeah um it's just a really fun gun it's got it's got a good feel gotta love the rcp90 you feel like a badass and it's just absolutely devastating um I loved hearing from the guys about the club, just the, the story of the club, why it sucks, you know, where its name comes from. Um, can you, and, can you share that briefly for, yes, for the listeners? Yeah. So, 
So they definitely included, they wanted to include a big range of guns in the game. They were modeling this after Doom. They wanted guns that felt and looked and sounded different, that had different speeds of fire and different accuracy rates, Mm -hmm. different reload speeds, all those kinds of things. And so they included the Quab, um, which is modeled after a after a uh, checkmate machine pistol, um, and they they thought it was just really funny that it was so inaccurate um, and that it was such a mess of a gun. Um, it just kind of sprays wildly, ma- making it, by the way, the best gun in one hit kill mode right. because it sprays all over the place. Uh, but it inflicts so little damage that it's it's basically a useless gun, even if you're dual w- wielding it in the game. Um, it runs out of ammo very fast without doing much damage. But they 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 named it the Quab because they had given all the guns real life names. They had modeled the guns off of real life guns, and so they gave them real life names. Nintendo's trademark office was like the, the Nintendo's legal office was like this is a trademark nightmare. You have to give them new games, new names. Uh, they named the Quab um, originally it was the the Scorpion, then it became the Spider. Then, oops, we printed 800,000 instruction manuals with the name Spider, and that's the name of another gun already. It's the name of a paintball gun. Let's find something so weird that there's no way it'll be a trademark gun name. Um, so they named it the Club after Ken Lobb, the Nintendo of America executive who had really um, supported them in the last stages of development and advocated for them with Nintendo at including the multiplayer mode at the last minute. I love that. I love that. I, I also like how some of the uh, uh, the developers you interviewed expressed a little bit of uh, uh, regret <laughs> having named it Ken Law because originally it was just, you know, he's this big boisterous guy who comes in and he right. says a lot of stuff. So he's just yeah. he's shooting off wildfire, just, like yeah. just like the yeah. club. But they're like, yeah. no, he really was a great guy. And we named the right. worst gun in the game after him. Yeah. Uh, that really speaks to just how incredibly sweet all of the GoldenEye developers are. I mean, just so generous, so humble. Um, they they genuinely were like, maybe that wasn't very nice that we named the worst gun in the game after him. And meanwhile, Ken Lobb's like, I'm so stoked. It's the best gun in the game. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. You could also be, who is it? Something Kirby. Was it? Bob Kirby, who like if Nintendo, he was the lawyer for Nintendo that they named Kirby after. Who's just like in my yeah. mind, it's like you you blow wind, like that's uh, that's what a lawyer does, and they name they name, and he actually looks like Kirby too, which has always been a little bit uh, uh, skeptical. You're right, there's there's a long tradition of this. I mean, the, the legend also has it, of course, that Mario is named after Mario Sagale, the uh, the the landlord yes. of Nintendo of America at the time yeah. of, of that game. So. That's awesome. It's, great. it's a great little cameos here. Well, and if you want those stories, then you can read uh, as, as a listener, you could read. I'm sure you've got a ton of those in your Super Mario Bros. 3 book as, as well. I do, yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> what what just before we, we we move on, what was it about Goldeneye? Uh, I, I understand Super Mario Bros. 3 was the first game that you had that experience with with your dad. What what was it about Goldeneye what, that, that made you say this is the next book that I have to write? It was really the, the game of my adolescence, right? I was always playing it with friends at sleepovers um, in middle school, high school, even into college. I played a lot with my um, roommate and my boyfriend mm-hmm. and his best friend. And um, it's just such a um, such a party game, such a community driven game. And so for me, games are about relationships. And so I had Mario, which is about my dad um, and GoldenEye, which is about my my friends. Nice. That's amazing. Any any future plans to take a look at new games uh, 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 for, for Boss Fight? You know, I I think um, Gabe might kill me if I if I send him another pitch. I'm the only boss fight bu- uh, books author who's done two books. But I was thinking about this last night. If I had if I got the opportunity to do another book, I would want it to be about Yoshi's Island. Oh, um, I've been thinking about that game so much now that I am a mom and I have this um this little helpless baby mm-hmm. and how amazing it is how that game actually captures the stress and fun and terror of parenting. I mean, just like feeling so triggered by hearing that baby yeah. crying and, yeah. and you have to get to him. And if you don't get to him, you lose. And it, that's how I feel on a day-to-day basis now with my baby. That crying. you'll lose like, that you'll lose if you don't get to it. <laughs> it's like, I lose hurry, I hurry, yeah. hurry. Like it's, it's babies are little like alarms. And so the fact that, you know, we were all playing, playing this game where you're trying to save a, a crying baby and like, you know, we're kind of being put through the paces of, of parenthood in yeah. some ways is super interesting and strange to me. Have you heard the story about, why the cry is in the game in the first place no no i haven't so again this is all so the story goes who knows if it's true or not you're the journalist sure. you call, call me out on it if you want but um uh, <laughs> apparently in play testing this game they didn't have the baby crying and people would just their instinct was to just leave the baby as though you would leave yoshi oh running off in another direction when you <laughs> lose uh him in, in super mario world the yeah. the cry 
made it so that either because that's our instinctive reaction when we hear a baby right. crying, or it was just so annoying that we had to go back they're and the, pick it up. They're one of the same. One Those of the same, things. exactly. It's, it's our instinct because it's so annoying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's, yeah, that's that's fascinating. So that would be, I mean, I was, my next question was going to be what your dream project would be, but I guess that would, that would kind of be it as well. Eh? I think so. I think I would want to sort of um, look at where that game came from, look at its really strange art style, that kind of hand-drawn, like childlike drawings. Um, you know, look at how it's come back with with the reemergence sure. of Baby Mario as a character, all the babies in the in the Mario Kart games. Like, where did that come from? Why did that happen? Right. And then yeah, just if maybe you a meditation. No, that's so weird. Why are babies yeah, driving right, these right. cars? Who gave them their driver's license I and know, a banana? I know it's so weird. I mean, why were we all so interested in playing a game where you had to take care of a little baby? Like those of us <laughs> who had little baby brothers and sisters. Like, why hadn't we had enough of that? And I think I would just, you know, my Mario book is about being a kid. My Goldeneye book is about being an adolescent. I can imagine my Yoshi's Island book being about a meditation on parenthood. Fantastic. So send this interview to Gabe as my pitch. I love that. No, no, you, <laughs> that, you just sold it. That sounds fit. I, that's a, that's a great pitch. Um, well, thanks so much for joining us. Anything else that you wanted to add or, or anything we missed in the interview, anything you want to, as, as some, some closing remarks there? No, just, just my gratitude for having me. I'm, I'm so, um, so excited to have been able to talk with you and I'm, I'm, uh, super grateful for your time. Yeah, it was a ton of fun. We might need to get you back for the Super Mario Bros. 3, uh, uh, interview as well. I would, I would love to do that. Thanks so much once again to Elise Noor for, for joining us. Uh, go check out her book. You can get that at bossfightbooks.com. Absolutely worth the read. Uh, I, I stormed through it. It's got some great pictures, some diagrams, some interviews, some insight. If this interested you at all, it is just tip of the iceberg compared to what else is in the book. Elise, thanks so much again for joining us and thanks for listening. We will catch you guys next week on the Retrograde Podcast. Furnished by Sad Styles Productions. Get into it!